the title for this talk is Unfabricating Reality. And of course, what the title implies, and I'm sure you, you have a sense of that, is that our experience of the world, when it's not direct experience, our, our view of the world, rather, is largely a fabricated view, fabricated by our minds. It's sort of a deception. That being so, the question is, how do we get out of the deception? How do we unfabricate our world? The basic trick, at least the starting trick, is to catch the mind in the act. It's very much like going to a magic show. And this person up there in this, on the stage says these incredible things, cutting people, mostly women for some reason, <laughs> in half. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 we, we look for the blood, you know. We are we are totally under the spell of all this humbug until until if we happen to catch the magician in the act. We happen to see through his sleigh of hand. After that, how can we possibly believe in the act anymore? We are free from the deception, free from the delusion. And the same happens with the fabrications in our mind. Sure, you've had, or you will eventually have that experience through the practice. My first task here in the talk will be to examine, to expose the fabrications that our minds indulge in, just with some example, and the motivations for it. And then look, however we can, into what's like to live without, to live free of fabrications. Of course, in, in that sense, in, in so far as examining the fabrications, this uh, talk is not terribly different from yesterday's talk, which was centered on the fabrications that we project onto the future or onto the relics of the past to replace the actual reality. The, the thrust of the talk was that we script, we create a scripted past, a scripted future, even scripted present, and we take it for real.
a more comprehensive view of this uh, scripting can be seen in the one of the basic central teachings of the Buddha known as dependent arising. There are other translations of it. I, I call it dependent arising. Others call it dependent origination, codependent origination, codependent arising, whatever. And, and this teaching emphasizes the central role that the I, the me, the ego plays in all of this. I'm, I'm sure you've heard me go over this teaching more than once, and the Buddha would go over this teaching umpteen times in his uh, scriptures, in his sermons. Um, and it bears repeating. Basically, simply, it's like this. Whenever an object makes contact with our senses, our mind, I guess, and I point here as if it was here, I don't know what it is, but, you know, <laughs> it's likely to have, this may have something to do with mind. I, I grant you. As soon as the contact is made, the mind rushes to categorize it, Characterize the contact, the object, actually, as pleasant, unpleasant, or something in between. If it's in between, we lose interest. Forget it. Go to the next thing. Basically, you know. But if it's pleasant or unpleasant, if it's pleasant, we go for it. We, and desire emerges. I want it. Or if it's unpleasant, desire emerges, I don't want it. And the desire, the wanting, in that desire, in that wanting, wanting the desire-er, the want-er, gets born. It's as simple as that. You know, uh, I use often the image of, of this arm reaching out to grasp something. The grasping occurs here, but the grasping really creates the mind state of grasping, creates the grasper in here. And, and because we are so much into creating ourselves, it seems to be so important to create ourselves, this is a chance. Hey, I got it. Problem is that this operation is doomed to fail. That's what the Buddha says, and that's what we end up understanding. It's doomed to fail because what we grasp, the object of grasping, is impermanent, like all items in this world, itemizable items in this world. And the, the I that is born, the me, the ego that's born through that desire, 
it's also going to die the moment the object vanishes. Not to talk about final death. This is the death of the eye that we created. And of course there is a final death too, when we grasp onto holding on to, to our dear life, to a dear body, to insisting that we must be here forever kind of thing. It doesn't, doesn't hold water, as the saying goes. So the result of all this movement, the dependent arising sequence, is suffering. Because we have dependent on holding on to stuff, to things, to images, to ideas, to whatever, to be happy, to people, of course, to be happy. The object is gone, we are desolate. Now, the dependent arising sequence applies, to, of course, to all five senses. I mean, visual is the obvious one, but it's also touching, there's also hearing, you know, the, there's even taste and smell sometimes. That's what moves us. But then there is a sixth sense. In, in the Buddhist terminology, the senses include the sixth sense, namely the mental sense. The, the thoughts in the mind. The, that sense, the mental contact, also gets triggered just like the other five. And in the particular case of the mental contact, the trigger elicits first and foremost what the Buddha calls, in his language, papancha. That is a loop of proliferation. There we go, we start talking to ourselves about all this stuff. And, and really, the, what gives us pleasure, in a way, or what we hold on to, is that mental proliferation. And as you know very well, that is a powerful tool for creating the eye because the mental proliferation always goes around the me. That's the central character of this play. You know, in the 17th century in France, there was this character, this philosopher, called Descartes. And Descartes made a very famous statement, as I'm sure you, most of you have heard about. At that time, it was fashionable to write in Latin for philosophers. They wouldn't write in plain French. And so his statement goes in Latin. Pronunciation, I think it's okay. Cogito ergo sum, which translates in English, I think, therefore I am. 
The difference, of course, between what the Buddha says and what Descartes says is that Descartes was, was a great champion of thinking and therefore being. What the Buddha says, forget it. It takes you nowhere. I, I like to translate uh, Descartes' uh, dictum in, a, in perhaps in less reverent terms. <coughs> and, and it goes like this. I do papancha, therefore I am. <laughs> or if you wish, I proliferate, therefore I am. I think that puts it into a more realistic context. Doesn't make it so attractive. Now, it's not just within our minds that we proliferate. We also proliferate in our conversations, in our exchanges with others. And in doing so, we fabricate a world that is not just a world that suits me, but a world that is to our collective liking. And that can be very powerful. Uh, somebody, I forgot who it is in an article, probably in Tricycle or one of these magazines, coined a, a word to refer to our collective ego, and he or she calls it a wigo. <laughs> wigo. So we fabricate, instead of the ego, the wigo. And this collective sort of proliferation is based on a common body of implicit assumptions. Assumptions that members of our local, national, or even global communities share. Many of these implicit assumptions are embedded in the language. Just in the, in the sheer words that we use. And it comes up very often as it came up in the uh, group meeting a, a moment ago, you know. Just, uh, it depends what connotations are carried by this particular word, what we conclude. And of course, it's not just the words, it's also the phrases and expressions that we have in common, sure. And it's helpful, I mean, in this community here, we we develop certain terminology too. I talk about dependent arising, and we have that in common. It's, it's helpful, and it helps communicate. But it has also problems. That's One of the problems of the collect, collective or consensual fabrications is that there's a tendency to accept without questioning that which is consensual. You know, we go to a dinner party and there's these nice people we just 
met. Uh, chances are we're going to be careful not to talk about politics, just in case there's a disagreement. Because the greater the consensual understanding, the greater the risks of trespassing beyond that understanding. But, you know, it, 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 that'd be a problem here if you people were shy and were unable to question the guy who sits where I'm sitting now. <laughs> but uh, hopefully that's not the case. I mean, you know, you say, I disagree. You're full of baloney, whatever. Sure, I mean, you may say it nicely, but uh, um, <laughs> it's important to to question, to, to have room for that. The other m more serious problem of consensual fabrications has to do with the disproportionate influence that corporations, that is institutions, large institutions like corporations, including corporations that own the media, have on on the consensuality of those fabrications. An influence that's totally out of proportion to what they are. They're just a small group of people owning a big newspaper, a big TV channel. And, and even more problematic is the fact that in the structure of corporations, the only thing that counts, really, that's what the CEOs are paid for, is maximizing the profit. And, and that cannot be a criteria, of, a unique criterion for the well-being of society. There's room for that, but it cannot be the one overwhelming everything else. So, yes, it is a problem. They, they don't mind catering to our crudest desires to turn us into shopaholics, if that sells more shoes for them or whatever. They have no compunction, and this is even more serious and painful, to me anyway, at manipulating or interfering with politics through the power of money, contributions to candidates, and uh, their lobbying, and of course a leverage over the ownership of the media that can go for this politician or the next. So, yes, and you know, politics has a Whoever is in power has a tremendous advantage in promulgating their agenda. Even as we know from the last eight years, even if that's uh, all a, a bed of lies, you know, we still tend to buy into it if it comes from 
the president or, or whoever. So it's all very problematic. But I should say that's, I, I wanted to mention that because fabrications can, can really go that way. But still, the main point of this talk is not so much choosing between this fabrication or that fabrication. It's really, can, what is it like to be relatively, at least relatively, free of things? How do we lighten the weight of our preconceptions, lighten their seduction. How do we nip the fabrication process in the bud? Very much as in the case of the magic show, the opportunity to do so often comes from catching the mind in the act of fabrication. And that breaks a spell. I mean, and, and in this sharing, in the groups and in the inquiry, this very often comes up, you know. People tell something, but in the telling, they're revealing that they, they finally discovered that they, they were fooling themselves. They may continue to fool themselves. It's, it's perhaps not that easy because there's a momentum, there's a long conditioning. It's not that easy as with the magician, which is a, a character we just met, probably, you know, unless we're committed to that path of spiritual sort of endeavor. But, um, just met, so we see through it, A. Forget it. But we may have been conditioned. Still, a place to look, useful place to look, is the process of dependent arising. We, something contacts our senses. We say, wonderful, I want it. Just, just catch, catch the movement of mind behind that. I want it. I want it. See, see, what? Coming up. See the emergence of I, me, mine. Say you're, say you're watching sports or, or a political contest, you know, you're for whoever. Yeah, for Hillary or for Obama, and, and they have a debate, and or, or for whatever, you know. And and one of them, and your candidate seems to be on top of the other, whatever. Uh, you feel like winning, and your eye goes up. It's easy to see that in sports, you know. 
I can see that. I, I graduated from Michigan. Oh, from Michigan. I, I look for the Michigan football game sometimes. Uh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, remind myself of that, of that place. And so, in doing that, I, I, I also realize there's no point in continuing to investigate, in, invest on in, in Michigan winning or whatever. Or if I do, I do it for a little while. I still do it for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you can also watch the Papancha coming up. And when there, you can have a field day, of course. <laughs> the things that our minds come up with are ridiculous, absurd. At least talking about myself, of course. <laughs> the encouragement instead is to turn our attention to, to that which we can really count on, which is the direct experience of things. Listen to the Buddha in the scriptures. He's talking to a character called Bahia. And he tells Bahia how he should turn himself, train himself, sorry. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That's how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sense in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there's no you in connection with that. When there's no you in connection with that, there's no you there. When there's no you there, you're neither here nor yonder, nor between the two. This is just the end of suffering. And again, to, to, to really sort of hammer at this point, this is uh, the Kalakarama Sutta. And there's a Buddha, and he uses the word Tathagata. Tathagata is a word he used to refer to himself, the Tathagata. Thus, monks, a Tathagata, does not construe an object as seen apart from sight. He does not construe an unseen, he does not construe of a thing worth seeing, he does not construe a seer. Now, and he goes on in the same mode. Uh, 
I'll repeat it because it bears repeating. He, Tathagata, he does not construe an audible thing apart from hearing. He does not construe an unheard. He does not construe of a thing worth hearing. He does not construe as hearer. He does not construe, construe of course means construct. He does not construe of a thing to be sensed as apart from sensation. He does not construe of unseen. He does not construe of a thing worth seeing. He does not construe one he senses, one who senses. Finally, he does not construe of a cognizable thing apart from cognition. He does not construe of an uncognized. He does not construe a thing worth cognizing. He does not construe about the one who cognizes. And so, in dropping the dependent arising detour, we begin to drop the construction of the seer, of the cognizer, and some of our persona. I'm not saying this is easy. One way to get a taste of this difficulty in an area that's easily managed is to, to consider the plight of actors. Uh, um, maybe some of you have taken acting classes. I did at one time. I used to take all kinds of classes about everything. I thought that was the purpose of life. But anyway, the, the basic teaching of the acting teacher is you have to believe in your role. You have to identify with the role you're going to play to believe in the character you're enacting. Until what happens then when the engagement comes to an end? Can you drop it? There's a, a very extraordinary actor called Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, he was uh, a character in, uh, in a recent hit, There Will Be Blood. And um, he was recently talking about to a New York Times journalist about uh, his uh, role in that picture. This the journalist, and then he quotes uh, Day-Lewis. Because of his commitment to a character, Day-Lewis has a very difficult time disengaging from a part. And this is what Day-Lewis says now. There's a terrible sadness. The last day of shooting is surreal. Your mind, your body, your spirit are not in any way prepared to accept 
that this experience is coming to an end. In the months that follow the finish of a film, you feel profound emptiness. Yeah, of course, this is emptiness, not in the Buddhist sense. <laughs> you're devoted, you've devoted so much of your time to unleashing, unleashing in an unconscious way some sort of spiritual turmoil. And even if it's uncomfortable, no part of you wishes to leave that character behind. The sense of bereavement is such that it can take years before you can put it to rest. Now imagine if after an actor has been believing in the character he's playing for, say, a year or so, and he gets hooked onto it. Imagine the impact of acting out who we think we are throughout our lifetime. <laughs> it's not easy to drop that self-image. <laughs> and, and it's particularly difficult because we're not even aware, at least uh, Lewis says, I mean, he may forget it, I'm sure he forgets it, but he knows that he has a life besides acting. It may be tough to remember, but he knows it. But most of us, we've grown up believing, by golly. I used to believe in the scientist, and be careful, I may even believe in the teacher I am now. <laughs> Of course, there is no problem with Day-Lewis superacting, or, or even no problem with my ability to project an image here, if, insofar as it's there. The problem comes from replacing reality with this fiction. Now, during yesterday's inquiry, Raquel brought very lucidly this point up. And he made quite clear that perhaps, she put it very nicely, perhaps in my zeal to make a point, I, have, I may have seemed to advocate the rejection of all fiction of all fabrication, which of course implies the rejection, would imply the rejection of all art, all of literature, all of visual arts, acting, poetry, whatever. That's, I'm grateful to Raquel for pointing that the lack of clarity in that area. So I want to make this very perfectly clear that the issue is that we should be able to know the difference 
between the real and the fabricating. Even we might, I mean, it's beautiful to go to a magic show. That's all humbug anyway, but there's something in there. Enjoy it, it's well done. But to believe that the woman has been cut in half, forget it. And yes, of course, some, some of the fabrications are helpful and others are not. They went over that before. And I also went over on Friday, not everyone here was there, but anyway, there was a talk about the pool and the cesspool, and there, the need to process all the clutter, all the stuff we accumulate, all the fabrications we accumulate. Now, just dropping fabrications is not, uh, that is, dropping fabrications as a substitute for reality, I always mean that, is, is not such a simple thing. True, of course. Um, and, and it's not to go there gung-ho, I'm going to drop it, I'm going to drop the mental proliferation, whatever, you know. I'm going to drop that persona. It, it takes ripening. Ajahn Chah, in a book called A Still Forest Pool, pool a chapter called Inside You is Nothing, Nothing at All. Lovely title. In the end, he, he doesn't give an answer. Neither, probably, will I give. No, I don't give an answer either. Of course. I mean, there's nothing. What can you say about nothing? But you can say something about getting there. He says, concentration is like breathing. If you determine to force your breath to be deep or shallow, fast or slow, breathing becomes difficult. But when you're just walking along, not aware of your inhalation and exhalation, breathing is natural and smooth. In the same way, any attempt to force yourself to become tranquil is just an expression of attachment to desire. I'd say one more expression of attachment to desire. And will prevent your attention from settling down. In other words, will be counterproductive. Sure. We, we need to keep that in mind. It's not an act of willpower. And yet, it's possible. We unclutter the clutter. We create as much space in the mind as we can. And Yes, we make ourselves available for tranquility to visit us. That's really it. Wish I had a better formula, you know. 
abracadabra, and there we are tranquil. <laughs> To, to make the mind tranquil, it's like listening to sounds, as we often do in, in, in practice, and then letting the sounds themselves become less important. And gathering our attention around the, the silence behind those sounds. The silence may start to sound like something, like a hum. And then, and then it, it may become something more encompassing than that. We begin to sense the edges of the emptiness, if you wish, the edges of the empty space, the emptiness of this spaciousness, the edges. And lo and behold, at times, we find ourselves surrounded by it. That has been my experience. That's the one process that I trust. I, of course, uh, maybe other ways, absolutely, maybe other ways. I, how, however, whichever way works for you, that helps you come to the end of suffering, of course. Anyway, in that stillness, there's nothing to grasp. There's nothing graspable. And we don't even want to grasp anything anyway. So the grasping doesn't occur. Dependent arising doesn't take place. There's only the stillness. And our mind opens up to the flow of life, and yes, to the flow of death too, at some point, whenever that comes. We are open. We let everything come. Let's sit in silence for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.